you through what um, I wanted to share this morning. Um, and just thinking through just the rampant nature of self-love promoted out in our society and even in our Christian circles and even in our one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, the, the, just the temptation to constantly be focused on self and it's fed to us in many various different ways. So, um, but there is a new form and a new phrase I hear a lot out there. And I even feel like it's like self-love taken to the next step and the next level. So we're going to kind of be talking through that today. You know, it's a new form of self-love celebrates being who you really are, which can be tricky because it sounds good. We, I, we aren't to be hypocrites. We aren't to be fake. We aren't to be deceitful in the way that we portray ourselves. We should be who we really are. And we will read these lovely little sentiments out there encouraging us to be who we really are. Our most, and here's the phrase, authentic self. You will hear that a lot. It embraces all our little quirks and the entirety of our personality and be, being and not hiding the real us from the rest of the world. While it is true that God creates us with individual personalities, we need to be very careful to understand what they mean when they are encouraging us to be our authentic self and where the focus of life is centered. So I went and found for us an article, not, not super long, but I'm going to read it for you this morning. And I actually got it from a Christian counseling website. So this is somebody who at least has a Christian worldview, um, but I am going to warn you as I'm reading it, it is rife with unbiblical thought patterns. So I want your radars up. Don't read it and think, oh, this is what Rachel's trying to teach us this morning. Pretty much it's the end antithesis of what we're going to try to um, learn this morning, but I want you to really think while I'm reading because there's subtleties and see if you can capture those subtleties because there's some thought patterns in here that are very alluring. They sound right, they sound good, or they really just, it's a siren's call to our self, our cravings of wanting to focus on self. So as I read it, I want your antennas up, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit after I read it, okay? So here we go. It is titled, Messy Authentic Self. And it always cracks me up because it always accompanies with this beautiful picture of this gorgeous, slender woman standing in a field with the sunrise and her hair's blowing in the breeze. And I'm like, that is not what I look like when I'm being my messy self. So <laughs> I'm like... Okay, you're already not presenting an accurate view here, friends. But um, anyways, okay, so let's dive in. In this season of constantly being told to love ourselves regardless of what others think and to radically embrace our uniqueness, what happens if we don't authentically like ourselves? Where do we put the pressure to be our own best friend when we aren't even sure if another person genuinely cares about us and isn't trying to tolerate our existence. 
What if being ourselves comes with this stinging boomerang of rejection? Being our authentic self is trickier than most bloggers, self-help authors, and counselors realize. I'm both, so the writer of the article is talking first person, I'm both a therapist and a self-help author, and it's taken me time to recognize how hard it can be to incorporate authentically liking ourselves into everyday life. Sometimes there are aspects of our personality that even makes us cringe. We hear our words and see the reactions on the faces of those closest to us. We've hurt them. Sometimes we're not nice people. We get stretched too far and too wide and we snap. In an instant, we become the parent we never wanted to be and promised ourselves we would never become. Yet, here we are, crying alone in the bathroom at a restaurant because we just lost our mind, not to mention in public, with our strong-willed toddler who can't seem to be a decent human being to that day. It's not easy to be our own bestie in those crying bathroom stall moments, is it? Our authentic self was ugly, which is nearly impossible to fully accept and be proud of at the moment. When we talk about finding our authentic self or embracing who we really are, there are numerous paths we can wander down. Some writers talk about finding our authentic self as being on a journey to discover what we really like and to find our core personality in a world that might try to change who we are and alter our voice. This type of personal development is fantastic and something as a trauma therapist I fully support. Many of us have gone through life experiences that shifted our ability to know ourselves at an honest level. Sometimes we're just not sure of what we feel. Following a path of gentle self-discovery is an experience every human being should embark on. I like the ease of answering key questions to guide our thoughts past the clutter of who other people want us to be so we can discover what we actually think and feel. The type of authentic self-teaching that concerns me is the pressure to always be happy with ourselves in spite of the messy, chaotic world that we bounce around in. Loving ourselves at all times in all seasons of life feels impossible to many, and I believe it leads to even more disappointment or self-hatred for not being as fully put together as, say, others we compare ourselves to. Some people really do struggle with looking at their very private inner turmoil and compare it to other less messy images of the people around them. This type of inner dialogue always leads us nowhere good fast. Yet, many are living in the state of mind of not liking themselves, but faking their embracing their true self. Maybe we can resolve this inner discord by fully rejecting the pressure to like ourselves all the time, in every moment, no matter what is swirling around us, and instead, 
embrace a real-world perspective that life is sometimes a mess, and so are we. Perhaps embracing our authentic self means building in a margin of error for the days that we just don't care about anything, but are still on our feet and fighting to make it the next day. Maybe we need to stop pushing the idea of being our own best friend who loves us every second no matter what, to be that friend who never gives up on us, even on our really rough, scary days. The friend who admits we blew it, helps us clean up the mess we created, and cracks a joke to make us smile through it all. We need to be that form of a friend to ourselves. Be the one who accepts our authentic self is going to include slightly losing it from time to time because we are humans with a lot of daily pressures. Embracing our authentic self needs to include the whole picture and not just the pretty highlights we want to present to the world or the pressure to never have messy moments. And that is how she concludes. So, we have this type of thought pattern being pushed in our society constantly. Both secular world, and like I said, this is Christian counseling in the Christian world as well. You hear little echoes of it as you hear people talking to each other or as you're hearing different talk shows or different areas. So, as I was reading that, did you hear anything that was unbiblical? <laughs> Maybe just a smidge. So as I read this article, I was struck by a couple facts. There was more than this, but these were just a few highlights that, that kind of crossed my mind as I was reading through it. So number one, it was assumed that self-love is to be slathered on ourselves, and that's a good thing. So that was just her base assumption, that you really should self-love, just maybe it should look like this. Uh, I was also struck by the fact that the words sin or even wrong were never used. We're just simply messy, and the world around us is chaotic, but never simple, wrong, evil, wicked, none of those words used. What was her antidote to the sin of losing our minds with a stubborn toddler? It was just to simply accept that we are going to be messy in being our authentic self. Also, number four, there was a subtle undertone that we're just victims to the pressures around us. And we can't help it if we lose it once in a while. The reason we lost it is because... We're just stretched too far and too wide. What was her solution to our inability of knowing ourselves on an honest level? It wasn't looking into the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No, her solution was going on a journey of self-discovery and finding our core personality. We resolve our inner discord by accepting the fact that life's a mess and so are we. So who's the ultimate judge of what is okay? We are. 
And we should just let ourselves be who we are because that's our authentic self. So an article that I read that was very helpful as I was reading opposing views to that, um, a gentleman had a couple quotes that I thought was just really good as we look into, okay, authentic self, how do we think about self? How do we muddle through these different thoughts? He said, simply put, the modern quest for identity cloaked as dignity, worth, recognition, those are words they'll use, is idolatrous. And the idol behind identity is I. I want to be recognized. I want to feel worthy. I want to be treated with dignity. But like all counterfeit gods, this one too fails to satisfy. How many likes are enough? How much recognition does it take to satisfy? The self desperately needs to be uncloaked for the idol it is. God, not the self, needs to have center stage in our hearts, our churches, our sermons. Rich, Christ-centered, expositional preaching displaces the imposter self and replaces him with the true God who sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. A big God, great God theology starts with the creator-creature distinction and forces the self to reckon with the creator's absolute rights over his creation. The question is no longer, who do I want to be? Who am I and how can I be fulfilled? But it becomes, who is God and what do I owe to him? So how does scripture view our being our authentic self? Are we allowed to define who we are inside ourselves? Do we shut out all other influences and voices in our life to be able to find our true self? This morning, we're going to look at two truths that will just help us start thinking, start this conversation, start thinking this through, that helps us to see the foolishness in elevating self, foolish pursuits and prideful practices. So if you'll open up in God's word to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. Lots to unpack in there, though. Two little verses with lots there. Proverbs 18, 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So a little bit of background on the book of Proverbs. We're often familiar with the book itself, but there's not a ton. I actually went looking for sermons on this particular passage and didn't find a lot. So it's good for us to know, okay, book of Proverbs. Uh, Jensen's survey of the Old Testament says the book of Proverbs reflects the zealous concern of believers for a righteous walk. Proverbs 1, 2 through 4 states the purpose of the book is to impart wisdom. This wisdom is not a mere head knowledge. These aren't just cute little quippy quotes. 
that Solomon wrote down for his son, but this is divinely enlightened understanding of what is good and what is evil and a personal experiential knowledge of the Lord. One cannot help but be impressed after reading Proverbs that God is so vitally interested in even the smallest details of the daily walk of his children. While other parts of scripture show us the glory of our high calling, this may instruct in all minuteness of detail how to walk worthy of it. Elsewhere, we learn our completeness in Christ, and most justly, we glory in our high exaltation as joint heirs with Christ. We look into this book, Proverbs, and as by the aid of the microscope, we see the minuteness of our Christian obligations. There is not a temper, a look, a word, a movement, the most important action of the day, or the smallest relative duty in which we do not either deface or adorn the image of our Lord and the profession of his name. So as we move forward and as we look at these, it helps us to remember Proverbs is there to help us think through, okay, these are seemingly small things, and yet our Lord cares about the small things in our life and how even inside our internal being, our inner man, so to speak, how he is self-controlled, following the ways of the Lord. And I loved how that commentary put it. There's no great action of the day or smallest action in which we either deface the image of our Lord or we adorn the image of that Lord. So we, our, our actions and our thoughts and our heart motivations should always to be having our living sacrifice of our lives adorning that image that we are to reflect. So the book of Proverbs often uses maxims of two lines, parallel or contrasting statements. The constant preoccupation of the book is with the elemental antagonisms of obedience versus rebellion, industry versus laziness, prudence versus presumption, and so on. These are so presented as to put before the readers a clear-cut choice leaving us no ground for wretched compromise or vacillating indecision. So in chapter 18 of Proverbs, we find the antisocial speech of fools in verses 1 through 11 and the reconciling speech of the wise in verses 12 through 21. But this morning, we're just going to hone in on just those first two verses. So let's look at number one on your outlines, foolish pursuits. Foolish pursuits. A is selfish pursuits can create isolation. Selfish pursuits can create isolation. Look back down at verse 1, just that first part. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. So that word separate there means to discontinue, disassociate, so discontinue an association or relation to go different ways. Um, one commentator gave the example at, of uh, Abraham and Lot 
as they're struggling in relationship to each other, Lot chooses to go a different way. He disassociates. Unfortunately, we see where he ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. But he disassociates and goes a different way. So that break in that relationship, in, in um, going separate ways. And then that seeks there. He who separates himself seeks. He pursues. One um, commentator put it, he alienates himself from the community as he seeks or pursues self-gratification. So this is a man, he is disassociating because he's got a direction he wants to go. And if you're not coming to, then he doesn't need your company or community. So ladies, how do we separate in order to pursue self-gratification? How do we sit there and focus on our self? Well, number one, our phones make it very easy to seek our own interests without stepping outside of our homes. Actually, we don't even often have to get out of our beds because a lot of us charge it where? Right on our nightstand. I don't even have to step one foot out of my bed. I can reach over, pick it up, and I've got all my own interests I ever want at a scroll. So where are we focusing? Or maybe we, we chuckle with each other because you walk into a restaurant and you see five teens at a table and what are they all doing? Talking with each other? No, they're right here. Or have you ever seen them where they, they're in the same room but they're texting each other? Because <laughs> this is too hard. That, that's not. So... We laugh at those things, but is that not coming, becoming more and more common in our society? Are we not learning to communicate in those ways? Why? Because we love our own pursuits. Yeah, I have young adults and teens. I have watched them bond with other teens because they literally sit on the couch next to each other and they scroll, scroll. Oh, oh look at this one. Isn't that funny? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, look at that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. But they can't put the phone down long enough to have a real conversation. Now, I will brag on our teens. I watched them last Wednesday night, and there wasn't heads down in a screen. They were at Culver's. If you go on a Wednesday night and you want to find Grace Community Church after Wednesday night, go to Culver's. You'll find them. So, but just a great group, and they were laughing, they're talking, they're going around the tables and mingling with each other. I was so proud of them that they were breaking that mold of not always. But even in a great youth group like ours, is this not still a temptation? Even with us, how many times do you go out with your family or you're sitting at home with your family and you're all sitting in the living room together and I'm preaching at myself. So well, I'm not teaching, preaching, I'm teaching, but I'm teaching at myself. And we're all sitting in the living room doing what? This or click, click click if I've got my laptop on my, on my lap. So we're separating, isolating because I have what I want to do. There's not a, hey, honey, what would you like to do this evening? Or, hey, you guys, let's, let's play a game together or let's go minister in this way together tonight. It's, oh, I'm so tired from everything from today. I just want to sit, relax and turn my brain off and do what I want to do. I mean, we're even to the point, can we even agree on entertainment to watch? We have 
every availability at a click of a button to watch whatever we want, and we've gotten to the point that we're even isolated in what we want to watch. Well, I want to watch this. Well, I want to watch this. So we all separate in different rooms and watch our own things. So it's even gotten to that fact. So um, I also found a helpful question that Jerry Bridges asked in his study companion study guide to respectable sins. He said, what do your calendar and your checkbook reveal about selfishness in your life? I found that very convicting. If I look through, no, I don't have a checkbook anymore, but if I'm looking through my checking account, what does it reveal about what I truly care about? How about my calendar as I'm looking through it? Am I, oh, can't touch that, that's me time. Oh, can't go there. I want to do this. I want to pursue this. So we come hard and fast. Now, is there a place? We always have to do moderation. We're not going to pendulum swing. Is it good and right to have, have a schedule, have a calendar, plan things in advance? Yes, that's prudent. That's good. That's wise. Is it constantly set in stone, I won't touch this because that's my me time. I won't give of myself to help this or that because then I would have to give up my me time and that's really important to me. Those are things to consider. What am I spending my money on? What am I spending my time on? We can even do this isolation in our, in our theological lives. We think we're pretty discerning and others don't, aren't. You know, we have our particular pet theology peeve, and so we elevate ourselves and we isolate from others. These people can think, I'm right, no matter who tries to talk to them. Jeremy Walker stated, we can persuade ourselves that what we are actually doing is very virtuous, noble, or in fact, it is dangerous and foolish. We are not to separate from the body of Christ. We need each other to sharpen each other. And we should not even elevate ourselves in our own head. This can, this can look like we started attending a Bible study and we get excited about what we're learning and we go home and we start sharing what we are learning with our husbands or our parents or friends or others in our family. And they don't get excited to the level or degree that we are excited. So what do we do in our own heads? We might have trained ourselves enough to not do it out loud, but what do we do? Hmm. Well, I guess I care about this, but they don't care as much. No. You know, sit there and say, well, at least we care about Scripture and about learning. We withdraw ourselves and subtly look down at others just because they're not joining us in our pursuit of what we're learning. Or we formulate opinions in our own heads and we don't search the scriptures to see if our thinking aligns with God's thinking. Oftentimes, do we not do that just because it's just plain hard work? It's hard work to comb through Think through what we're thinking. Think through our opinions on something and then say, okay, is my thinking reflecting my heavenly father or is this just my opinion, my conscience issue? Am I reflecting God in my 
even my thoughts about my own opinions? Or am I subtly elevating myself, isolating from others because they're not agreeing with my opinions? You know, maybe we're getting serious in our battle with sin and start implementing steps to kill our sin in ourselves. And then we start looking around and wondering, why isn't everybody else doing the same thing? We have a focus on respectable sins in our own lives, so we start seeing it a little more clearly in others' lives, right? But instead of trusting that God will shape and mold people in his own timing, we kind of try to be the Holy Spirit and shape and mold people into our thinking of what they should be when we think they should be it. Instead of helping and praying for that person and bearing that burden with them and cheering them along on life's journey, we want change right now because, I mean, we're doing it in us, so why isn't God doing it with them right now? We try to do this in our families with our children, with our husbands, because, you know, he already knows these truths, so he really should be working on it anyway. So we'll just help him along by reminding him of these scriptures often. Now, should we encourage our children and our husbands to love Christ? Yes. Should we get impatient in that pursuit when they don't change, when we think they should change? No. We pray. We humbly wait on our Lord and the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. And that's so hard. People don't grow at same same speed, same lengths. So we get excited and we want it to happen right now, but that doesn't justify our impatience on the working of the Lord. Yes, encourage. Yes, cheer others on. Yes, encourage with the word, but don't get out of sync and try to take control. Like you need to do this now because this is what's right to do and you need to listen to me and this is how this is going to go. Or let's say someone sins against us or says something we don't like or agree with. So we cut ourselves off from them and avoid them in the future. We eye them with suspicion and justify our reactions instead of either choosing to forgive them just as God and for Christ's sake hath forgiven us or cover their sin and loving, or with a lovingly, with a spirit of gentleness, confront their sin if needed. We start missing church because ugh, we don't want to see that person or deal with that difficult situation. It's just easier to sit at home and we can watch the sermon because then we don't have to deal with the difficult situations. Then habit settles in and we miss church more and more. So here's the first of the quotes that I brought home for you. A lovely gentleman named H.B. Charles was preaching down in South Lake at the conference, and he said, if you can miss church without missing church, something's missing. <laughs> and I love that. If you can miss church without missing church, then something's missing. So Tom Pennington, the pastor down at Countryside, laid out that we should love the local church like Christ does sacrificially, with a sanctifying love, a nourishing and a cherishing love. 
We should not focus on the hurt that's been done to us, but focus on how can we, in the middle of the difficult situations, reflect the heart and mind of Christ to our brothers and sisters. Again, that might mean forgiveness and covering of sin. That might mean loving, gentle confrontation of that sin. But it means something, and it definitely doesn't mean cutting off, isolating, and avoiding. That does not help you grow, and that helps nobody else in the body as well. So we have that that selfish um, pursuit creating isolation, but we also have B, selfish pursuers are unreasonable. Selfish pursuers are unreasonable. Look back down at verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Because we think we are right, we stop listening to any sound judgment that comes our way. That word quarrels means bears the teeth to. I love Hebrew because sometimes it's so, so visual. But just that quarreling, that rising up, the bearing the teeth. And that sound wisdom there is good, sound, practical thoughts. So like a snarling dog, we bare our teeth to anyone who dare disagree with the hill of right we are standing on. Because I'm right. I'm dying on this hill. So we stop listening to the input of our husbands or friends or parents when they try to speak into our lives because we convince ourselves, well, they just don't understand they don't know what it means to be me, the true me, my authentic self. So therefore, they can't understand, so I'm not going to listen. But what does Proverbs 1.5 say? It says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now, ladies, lest we think because we've got some gray hairs, and have learned a few things, we don't really need to listen much to others. We shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the way I am. I've been this way for decades. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or you might say, I've been trying to change and I just fail. Why keep trying? It's doomed to fail before I begin. I'll always be this way. Ladies, we don't recognize the authority of God's word in our lives or the power we've been given through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to make changes where we need to, even in the core of our being. It is good and right to think, I will trust God's word more than I trust my own reasoning, my own ability, my own anything. He can change me. And then look back. Those of us that do have a few gray hairs, look back. Are you the same person today that you were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? No. Why? Because God is able to do the impossible. He can even change us. Okay. 
or we've seen people use scripture to apply to other people. One common one is Philippians 2, 3 to 4, which states, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. Well, they're always looking after their own interests. Our hearts cry out. Wives can use this against their husbands or people with each other at church without stopping to realize um, this scripture is intended for us to apply to ourselves, not to take and go around and apply it to other people. Now, is it biblical truth? Yes. But we should stop making lists of how our husbands don't seek to look out for others' interests, but only for their own. And maybe we should start making lists of how we are doing the same thing by not taking steps to help our husbands look more like Christ. If we did, we might be a much more content, humble person. So a lot of times you in the counseling room will hear, well, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says they should look out for the interests of others, but he's not doing that for me. So they take scripture and use it as an accusatory thing instead of going, how does this apply to me? How am I not considering the interests of others? Jerry Bridges said in our chapter, the selfish person is not only indifferent to the needs of others, but actually expects, expects them to meet his or her needs and desires. So not only do we have foolish, selfish pursuits creating isolation and unreasonableness, but also, number two, we have prideful practices. Prideful practices. Look down at verse two. A fool does not delight in understanding. So let's stop and just do the first part of that little pair a fool does not delight in understanding. A on your outlines. A fool has a closed mind. A fool has a closed mind. That, that phrase, does not delight in, a fool does not delight in understanding, means he rejects it or he detests it. And the underlying Hebrew under the word understanding is listening to the wise. So a fool rejects or detests listening to the wise. What does Proverbs 12, 15 say about that? It says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Now, ladies, have we ever closed our minds off to others? Maybe Chris is preaching and says something in a sermon and we pick it apart in the way he said it because really truly at the end of the day we don't want to obey the scripture he was explaining so we sit there and we say well he shouldn't have said it that way our hearts rise up within us and we get discontent or upset or 
just pick apart the phrasing of what he said because really we need to search our hearts and say, am I just struggling to obey? He said I have to stay in the circumstances I'm in and I really don't want to do that. So we dissect his sermon to be able to justify our own opinions and judgments of why we're doing what we're doing because we just simply at the end of the day, if we were honest, we don't want to obey. So we need to be very, very careful with that. Or if someone comes to us to resolve a conflict, we pick apart their reasoning or their apology or their character so that we remain right in our own heads instead of being humble and extending forgiveness and grace and gratitude that they were willing to try to work through the conflict in the first place. Do we not do this? Our husband comes and he says, I'm sorry. And we go, all right, you're sorry for what? I don't know what you're apologizing about. When we well know what he's trying to apologize for. Do we make it hard for our poor beloveds to come apologize to us? Do we nitpick things apart or our children or our friends? These are things we need to Peel that onion again. Okay, what's at the core of this? Why am I responding? Why is my mouth responding in this way? Why is my heart rising up within me? Why is my gut reaction not forgiveness, gratefulness, love towards this person, towards the scripture I'm hearing? H.B. Charles again said, there is a level of love and good deeds that I will never reach if I don't have godly people around me to stir me up to it. So again, we can't cut off and isolate. We can't close our minds. We cannot act like the fool when somebody is coming to us. Or two, do we cherry pick which scriptures we want to focus on instead of getting a good steady diet of the whole of scriptures? Do we only read what we think we need? H.P. Charles, again, he was just really quotable, you guys. Yeah, he said so many good things. I'm only giving you a snippet. You can go online and listen to the, uh, the sessions that they did. But H.P. Charles, so thinking about cherry-picking which scriptures we want and only reading what we think we need, he said, the Bible is not a cafeteria where you pick what you want to eat and leave the rest. The Bible is like eating at Big Mama's house where you eat it all or you don't get to eat at all. So, and I just thought that was so poignant of that is what it's like. You don't get a choice of pick, 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 pick. Okay, I like these things. These things are sweet to my mouth, so I'll focus on this. But I don't want to look at that over there. Or we excuse our behaviors and thought patterns because, you know what, that's just my personality. Our purpose should not be self-discovery, but all our time and energy should be poured into the fact that our Creator made us His image bearers. We are to be about the business of discovery of who He is and how we can best reflect his character in the circumstances that he has placed us. Self needs to be set aside in loving obedience to his word. 
Our focus should be looking up, not looking in. No more morbid introspection where we stare at our own belly buttons all the time. We need to be looking at Christ who has the living word, who is the living water. That's where our focus should be. So we have the fool who has a closed mind, but we also see the prideful practices of a fool having that closed mind, but it also shows B, a fool who has an open mouth. So a fool that has an open mouth. Look at verse 2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Ladies, is this not where American society especially lives? We delight in closing our minds and opening that mouth and making sure everybody around us knows exactly where we stand on things. This is a contrast to the Proverbs a few verses before. If you still have your Bibles open, look just a couple verses in the last chapter, um, Proverbs 17, 28. Notice the contrast here. That verse says, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. So here we have the direct opposite, the Proverbs helping unfold and unpackage that for us. That fool is only, he doesn't delight in understanding, and there's an understood there, but does delight in only revealing his own mind. So the fool's counterproductive talkativeness proceeds from his lack of insight into the damaging effects of his speech and self-control over his emotions and from his being wise in his own eyes. Ironically, the fool aims to let his heart expose itself, but it exposes what he did not intend, namely his folly. So when he opens his mouth, he thinks, I'm just going to let it all out there because people need to know what I think. I need to have a voice. And yet when he expresses himself out of the heart, the mouth speaks, so he shows his folly. Jerry Bridges said, the person whose attitude is, I can just say what I think and let the chips fall where they may, is selfishly inconsiderate. This person is completely indifferent to the possible embarrassment, humiliation, and put down feelings of others. He is concerned only with expressing his own opinion. Our society would label that as being authentic, but, but a biblical view would really say that's just really being prideful and selfish. Now, how many times have we had a conversation with other people and instead of truly taking the time to listen to them for the purpose of understanding what they're trying to say, we're too busy in our own minds formulating a response and we're patiently waiting for them to stop talking so that we can say what's in our heads, right? Or how many times do we talk to ourselves in our own heads without any restraint? Again, because we want to look good in front of others, we'll let loose in our noggins. It won't come out in the mouth, but we're ranting up here and we're listening to ourselves. We're not preaching God's truth to ourselves. We're just listening to what we have up here. 
Do we value our own thoughts and our opinions that we rush to share them on whatever social media platform we choose? Do we rush to chime in on someone else's rant instead of carefully considering before we start typing? Is the world better off not knowing our opinions? Are we taking time to consider that what we're about to say, is it wholesome? Is it helpful? Is it humble? Ephesians 4.29 is a really good verse to plaster everywhere. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, including your fingers as well if you're typing on a computer screen. But let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ladies, we need to abandon any selfish pursuits that isolate us from the community that God has provided to strengthen our walk with him. And we should carefully consider if we have prideful practices of having a closed mind and an open mouth. Are we subtly allowing the foolishness of elevating self creep into our everyday lives? But you might ask, but Rachel, what about the late days where I do lose my mind with my stubborn toddler in the middle of a restaurant and we find ourselves crying in the bathroom stall? Do we hug ourselves, wipe our own tears away, and accept who we are as our authentic self? Or, instead, should we turn to the practical list, I'm doing this as a review, that practical list that Jerry Bridges laid out for us in dealing with our sin and our thoughts centering around self. So, what were those steps? Apply the, does anybody remember? Say it loudest. Great job, apply the gospel, depend on the Holy Spirit, good. Recognize your responsibility, identify specific respectable sins, memorize and apply appropriate scriptures, cultivate the practice of prayer, involve one or a few other believers with you. So ladies, as we're crying in the bathroom stall, we should be crying out to God for forgiveness of our sinful anger and impatience. So particular sins we then can rejoice in the forgiveness we receive. And then depending on the Holy Spirit to give us strength, go and repent to our child and whoever else just saw us sin in a big way. We can ask our husband who's sitting there to pray with us and find a verse when we get home to help us deal with anger and impatience. Ladies, we are not trapped by our authentic self. We do not have to present ourselves as members to unrighteousness, but we have the freedom to be slaves to righteousness. We are free to be conformed to the image of our Savior and reflect His character to a lost and dying world. Pray with me.